Hello and welcome to The REIT Report. I'm your host, Sarah Borks and Quito. Today, we're looking at new research that compares the performance of private equity real estate relative to listed REITs. I'm joined by one of the co-authors of the study, Tom Arnold, former global head of the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority and a visiting scholar at the University of Florida's Warrington College of Business. Tom, you and your co-authors have produced this new academic study on the performance of REITs versus private equity funds. What are some of the main takeaways? Well, I think investors are always trying to determine whether the public markets or the private markets will generate uh, superior returns. And you can look at returns either naively or you can look at it on a risk-adjusted basis. And so our research was to, to try to take a look at the comparison of individual funds against the real estate industry. So both sides of the equation are, in fact, investable. And our observations and conclusions were that more than 50% of the time, you would have been better off in the REIT index during the period of time that the private equity real estate fund was investing. And um, I don't think that had been really clearly viewed before this, uh, this most recent research. Now, there have been prior studies about REITs and private real estate. So what is it about your research that sets it apart and brings something new to the table? The prior research is a comparison of a private benchmark of some kind to a public benchmark. And that's an awkward comparison. The private benchmarks are really not investable. And when I'm at meetings with other CIOs at public pension funds or other sovereigns, and somebody asked the question, what do you benchmark your real estate portfolio against? There is universally a, a nervous chuckle from the CIO. And I think it's a, this you know, unanswerable question where there really isn't an ideal benchmark. Benchmarks uh, really by, by definition are supposed to be unambiguous and investable, measurable, appropriate representative of, of what you're considering and comparing it to and specified in advance. And so you can invest in a public real estate indices, but you cannot invest in a private real estate indices. And so in recognition of this, what we did was we took a a group of funds and their performance. It was a 15-year period from 2000 until 2014. And we started with 950 private equity real estate funds. They're all closed in, all private, some of them owned by uh, private investment managers, and in some cases, affiliates of, of public firms could have been either. There were 465 of those 950 that were U.S.-based and that we had the full data set. So there were a few U.S. funds that were pre-2000, late 80s and, and, and 1990s. So that brought us to 460 funds. And then ultimately, we ended up with a group of funds, uh, 375 funds that were managed by 150 managers that in aggregate were managing about 220 billion of AUM. So a very sizable and, and meaningful sample. What we did then was we were provided by the data provider the point in time that the fund became 20, each fund became 25, 50, or 75% invested. So we knew when its investment period would start. We came up with a mathematical calculation to determine what the investment horizon or investment duration of that fund. And then we took each of those 375 funds and we treated them and, and compared them against, for example, in the U.S., the U.S. NAIRI index. And we just 
looked at it as a almost a stylized private market equivalent. So if a fund started investing in in the you know second quarter of 2004 and they were 50% invested at the end of 2005, we took that point in time as a starting point. If we knew that the duration of the investment was uh, three and a half years, we said, okay, if you invested in public real estate market at that point in time for exactly three and a half years and compared it to the performance of that individual fund, how would that have compared? And so it was essentially 375 matched horse races. And then we determined how often the public market investment would have been superior, how often the private market investment would have been superior. And then to the extent that one is typically superior to the other, what was the average spread or what was the average return differential between the two? What do your findings mean for investors and how can they use that research? What does this tell them about how they should be investing? Well, that's a good question. And, and I think that this is why it's important to look at distributions and not averages. You know, so often people look at the average return and you know, that's unlikely that that's what you'll have. I mean, it's giving you a reference point, but it's not necessarily giving you a real sense of where you could end up. And so I think by uh, this, this certainly emphasizes how important the vintage or, or year of the funds and uh, creation and investment, how important it is. It varies dramatically from year to year. So timing is a, is a huge component. And the nice thing about our research is we we solve for timing. We were always comparing, you know, the exact starting point and exact ending ending point between the public and, and private markets. So you can have better results in, in either market. But what our what our research showed is that you know more than 50% of the time you would have been better off in the in the public markets. And what people find you know curious and interesting about that is that most private investors assume that they're going to earn additional premiums over what they could earn in the public market through illiquidity premiums, through a risk premium, uh, in terms of private real estate funds typically have more leverage than the public funds. So you would expect then that the, although the returns may be more volatile, you would expect by definition that you would be compensated for the additional leverage. You think you would be compensated for the illiquidity, the inability to, to move in and out of the of the investment as you choose to. And then my co-authors and I wrote a paper in 2017 that was published about kind of the opportunity cost of, of waiting. The idea that if you don't know when you're going to make an investment because the investor's making that, not making that decision and manager's making it for you, then you're in fact on standby. And you don't know whether you're going to get a capital call for 5% of your commitment or 25%. And so that paper addressed how different firms to how different investors think about that risk. And the short answer is it's in the eye of the beholder. Every investor's risk profile, their risk tolerance is, is different. The, the cost of, uh, of maintaining liquidity is different. But what is clear is that if you have two investments that are exactly the same and one you can, you can time it at your convenience and another is being timed by somebody else and you're effectively you know, short a call option on your capital commitment, you would assume that you would be better compensated and returns would be higher. Now, in fact, that wasn't what we found. We found that even without considering risk, that on average, the public market return was 165 basis points over the, the private market returns. And then the question is, well, I would have expected more, not less, out of the private market. 
So um, what would you expect? And so we ran a lot of different scenarios just as, as you know, as validity checks. But our general view, and, and it's easy enough to, to adjust this, but that there's certainly research that suggests that an illiquidity premium should be worth something in the neighborhood of 200 to 300 basis points a year. That the differential in a 40 to 50% leverage vehicle and a 60 to 80% leverage vehicle, as would be the case in the private markets, maybe that's 100 basis points. And then maybe another 125 basis points for having to keep dry powder. So the expectation, what I would have assumed we would have found is that the private markets consistently outperform the public markets by two, three, 400 basis points. And in fact, we didn't find that at all. So it really calls into question, are you being compensated for those incremental risks? And, and investors need to think about that and, and, and really decide their hurdle rate for those additional risks as they perceive them, as, as they experience those, and then determine if, if, the, you know, if they're a skilled enough manager selector that they can not be an average manager that, that they can really find a, you know, a top quartile manager, because that's really what it takes to beat the public markets. Historically, pension funds have overweighted private real estate and underweighted REITs. Uh, this research suggests that this is less than ideal. How do you explain why pension funds weight the way they do? That's an interesting question. I think that there's a perception that they're getting better returns. There's a perception that with leverage, they can generate cash flow that would be in excess of a, a, of a dividend yield from the public market. I think there's a perception that there would be less diversification benefit through an investment in the public markets. There's some very interesting research that's been done over the years to say how close is real estate when you compare private investment in real estate and public investment in real estate. And this is a you know, gross generalization, but in the short term, their performance can vary dramatically. But over the long term, it really tends to converge. And so when you look at extended periods, eight, 10 years, it tends to be you know, much more common. What you, you do see is there is more volatility in the, in the public markets. But then again, it's another situation where we're comparing apples and oranges a little bit because the public markets price continuously and the private markets are typically done through appraisal and ultimately sale. Uh, and so there's significant smoothing of private market returns. And so there's a, a fair amount of statistics that has to be used even to make the, you know, the, the, the volatility and, the, and the, you know, as a measure of risk comparable between the public and private markets. You know, even just to add to the to the discussion, I think it's relatively inexpensive to invest in real estate through the public markets. The, the public real estate managers are, you know, their their fees are a fraction of what a lot of the private equity investment managers charge. And you know, in my old organization, I was with a sovereign wealth fund, and you know, we we reviewed the performance of 126 public managers. It's about 335 billion of AUM. And then did really a deep dive. We, we, we took that 126 and we, we looked at it and, and looked for dedicated REIT teams. They had a minimum AUM. The teams had been together a sufficiently long period of time and, and so on. And kind of took 34 that we thought distinguished themselves from the, the 126. And, you know, none of them had a fee load that was a fraction of what you would play one of the big private equity real estate managers. 
You were head of real estate at the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. Did you pioneer the REIT program there? At least, you know, 2.0. I think there might have been somewhere in its legacy some public real estate investment. And then we had the public markets had provided an exit. And so we had been in some private investments that some of the managers then floated. Uh, and so we, you know, the, the, the only public real estate that we had was private real estate that had then been sold or fractionally sold to the public markets. What we did was to decide that we were going to have a dedicated investment program for public real estate and that we were going to, to try to you know, begin to, to leg into the market and honestly replace some of our private real estate activity with public markets. I mean, the, the, the strong calling for private real estate activity is something that is either not accessible in the public markets or something that you can find in a different way. In other words, you could make a more specific bet in, you know, in Silicon Valley office, or you could make a more specific bet in affordable housing in India or large logistics in China, something like that. So those types of activities, you know, there really isn't a way to duplicate those in the public markets. But if if you're going to go buy a, a core CBD office building in the United States, I think pretty highly the management team at Boston Properties. I mean, you know, why not why not take management at that level, have it efficient, have leverage moderate, and have the ability to enter and exit those uh, an investment like that as you as you would choose. So, I shared half the story. The other story was we ultimately selected two two managers of the of the 34 we looked at and the eight that we spent a lot of time with. I would say that they would uh, could categorize them in one of three. They were either diversified managers, which would have at least 100 different uh, positions. There were blue chips or, or these asset management giants, you know, the, the, the Black Rocks of the world, those types of things. And then there's sharpshooters, so people that had very, very concentrated bets. And so there's, there's a nice opportunity to, you know, if you share conviction with some of these, uh, these, these sharpshooter managers, that they offer a real opportunity, I think. And, you know, we evaluated them on things like the how consistent they generated alpha, that is the their returns, excess over you know the average average REIT returns, the length of the track record. In other words, there's some very interesting young organizations, but you know being a sovereign and being a little bit on the con- conservative side, if somebody looked fantastic but they'd been in business for two or three years, we didn't they didn't really make the, the final cut with us. And then um, you know kind of the, the the overall track record, we looked in some cases at the ownership structure, you know how uh, how locked in people were, what sort of succession risk would there be? Was there one star, uh, you know, re- manager of the team? And if something happened to that person, you know, might, might there be risk and, and that type of thing. But I, I would say, Ron, I'm, I'm happy to report that we found a very deep and, and qualified group of, group of managers supported by quantitative research, you know, big data with significant hands-on real estate knowledge that frequently met with with the with the teams uh, the the various re- management and it was hard to make a choice at the end of the day i mean there were seven or eight you know just really really world class firms that anybody would be fortunate to to work with so the the uh, the professionalism in in the industry has really really grown i mean i i think the public the us public Remarket now, I think, is 1.2 trillion or something. And that, and you know, I've seen it grow up. I've been in the business for 30 years, and it was so nascent when I started. 
and it's so professional and, and so well organized and well run today. It's, it's impressive. I'm sure NARIC's had something to do with that, right? <laughs> now, you did some segregation of private equity funds into different types. Were there some surprises for investors there? Well, yes. Um, we affirmed work that, honestly, we had uncovered in, in a paper a couple of years ago. But we found that the higher-risk funds, which are things like true opportunity funds or development funds or funds that would you know, buy positions that were kind of loan to own, they actually underperformed the lower risk funds. So the message there was your core and your value add, your core plus is providing you equal, you know, kind of equal or, or superior returns. And so it's interesting that if you really, you know, stress out the risk that you're, that you're, you're probably taking risks that you're not fully compensated for. And Joe Pagliari of the uh, University of Chicago has written a number of pieces on this topic, and he believes that you're better off externally leveraging core than you are taking really, really high-risk positions with significant lease-up risk or repositioning and, and, and those type of things. So, And he's got some pretty compelling, compelling research on that front. We also found in, in earlier work that we had looked at whether large funds or smaller funds, private funds, perform better. So we split it, and we found that above-median-sized funds outperform the smaller funds. Then we split it three ways, and we did small, medium, and large. And interestingly enough, the medium-sized funds by AUM outperformed both the large funds and the small funds. So it looked like maybe there was a point of diminishing returns, you know, kind of a, a U-shaped curve. But just to test it one more time, we went 30, 30, 30, and 10, meaning that we took the, the smallest 30%, the medium 30%, the highest 30%, and then took 10% that was the mega funds, the multiple billion dollar funds. And they outperformed the other three categories. So your first choice is a giant and your second choice is a medium-sized fund. So it's kind of an interesting relationship in terms of kind of fund size. And so we were able to, to both verify the relative performance among private funds. And then we started looking at things like the performance between the private market and public market, what sort of economic conditions change that. And so, for, for example, if, if there's uh, GDP growth, then there's less differential. In other words, that the, that the, that the outperformance of REITs would narrow in, in strong growth periods. And then we found that that, that relationship uh, increase, that spread increase when things like interest rates were higher or there was a higher credit risk premium as defined as a triple B spread. Yeah, we didn't find anything that contradicted the earlier work that we did. And so we really just able to kind of dovetail this on and not look at, I think this would have been a very short, perhaps very boring paper if we had just done, repeated our earlier work and compared it to the average REIT, whatever that may be. But by setting these horse races, we're able to take the you know, the, the, the size and the timing and the, the vintage effect and incorporate the equivalent economic conditions and all those kind of things. So we're able to kind of isolate it so we could make a, a better comparison. In terms of the performance of REITs relative to some of these various segments, what did you find? It's idiosyncratic in the sense that, you know, there's transparency in the, in the public market. And so you, you can aggregate that, you know what you're looking at, you can look at the weight by sector, geography, whatever it may be. Um, these private equity funds are very unique. Each of them are, you know, somehow different. Each portfolio is, is unique. And so 
we didn't necessarily have vision into exactly what they held or, you know, or what their strategy. And they really are not always forthcoming, even about things like leverage and, and, and all that. We knew what the, the general drawdown schedule was. We knew what their net IRRs and the net equity multiples that they, that they generated were able to solve for what their investment period was. And so, you know, we had 375, you know, unique courses, if you will. And we took each of those unique courses and just said, were you better off or worse off investing in that unique private vehicle versus just having put the same money in, in the overall equity market over that same time period? And again, we found that there was a edge, not, a, you know, what wasn't by count a gigantic, I think it was 53% of the private horses lost to the public horses, 46 or 47% of the um, private horses won against the public horses. And there were a few that were a little too close to call. Now, it's important to provide context there that again, that's not putting any sort of liquidity premium, leverage premium, calling capital over time, those, those types of things. So if you overlay that, then what we did in, in the research was just to say, well, our expectation is that we would want to have, we would want to earn the equity market return plus whatever we thought those appropriate premiums would be for those three dimensions and add that to whatever the, the public markets return. And we found that, you know, in that instance, that the public markets outperform more than two thirds of the time. So it went from being slightly better to if you're really thinking about that. And then it, it, it provides implications that buying an illiquid investment of any kind, not just picking on real estate, you're not necessarily guaranteed an illiquidity premium. You just can't assume that if you're if you're hamstrung in terms of transactions in and out, that you're going to get compensated for that because we really didn't find evidence of being compensated for that. Tom, was there any other information in the research that our listeners would be interested to know about? Well, I, I would just say, I think that it's, that it's robust. Um, you know, we have found that uh, and, and we're working on some a project now relating to some interim reporting because the, the question is, if a manager pr- presents you with returns, how reliable is that? And if, you know, if the fund is liquidated and it's, you know, the movie's over, then you can feel pretty confident about it. But, you know, a lot of times there is capital that has to be reserved you, you might have construction claims, you might have litigation, you may have any number of things. You may be providing reps and warranties and have to provide cash. So sometimes there are funds that are um, not actively investing and in fact may have sold a lot of their investments where there is a reported return. And so we're spending a lot of time trying to figure out when, when you can accept that at face value. And so that, that would be the, the next. But what we did is we, we looked at this fund set and we tested everything that we've just talked about, and we did it more than one way. So we did it the traditional way, which is just to give a sufficient amount of seasoning. You know, and, and sometimes um, practitioners and, and industry professionals will say, well, this is 2021. I mean, why did you, you know, why are we looking at funds I, I understand why we're looking at the 2000 and 2001, but why did we stop at 2014? Well, because if we if we took a 2019 fund, we would we wouldn't know much about it. You know, we might know what it's been buying over the last year or two, but there certainly wouldn't be returns. 
that would be any more than a you know a, a wild speculation of the manager. So there's no point in in comparing the reality of public market performance and its transparency to just you know speculation on on, on the other side. So um, you know I I think through time we can refine this, and I think we're you know we're, we're developing something that um, it, it is important to to recognize. You know if if um, distribution of all the private equity real estate funds. So we really could have, and, and we looked at them and have looked at these, uh, this fund set on an equal weighted basis, on a capital weighted basis, on a duration capital weighted basis. And so we've kind of tried to look at it to make sure that we've, um, we've kind of unpacked any, any of the, um, any of the tendencies or biases that could be inherent. And we, we feel this, this research holds up pretty well. Tom, thanks very much. 